Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Daniel Kurzrock, co-founder and CEO of Regrained. And in this episode, we talk about how he's building an innovative mission-driven ingredients platform that's leveraging technology and culinary science to transform beer waste into food. Quite an interesting thing he's doing. They also right now are crowdfunding through WeFunder and you can find that at wefunder.com slash regrained if you're interested in investing. I know they'll be closing soon as of October 2020, so you can check that out. And in this episode, we cover a wide variety of topics as always, but really diving into how the company got started, this idea of upcycling, what that is, how they're using that to really make a more sustainable food system some of the partnerships along the way they've they've helped create and even the association they helped create the upcycled food association and dan's experience fundraising talk about crowdfunding as well with WeFunder, and much much more as always the show notes for this episode can be found at justgogrind.com slash podcast and you can support the show by leaving a rating and review over in apple Podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Hawk Media, a full-service outsourced CMO based in Santa Monica, California, providing guidance, planning, and execution to grow brands of all sizes, industries, and business models. Hawk Media is recognized by Inc. as one of the fastest-growing marketing consultancies, and their collaborative process, a la carte offering, and month-to-month fee structure give clients the flexibility they need to boost digital revenues and marketing ROI. Hawk Media, the company, has serviced over 1,500 brands of all sizes, ranging from startups like Tomorrow Melon, SIO Beauty, and Bottle Keeper, to household names like Red Bull, Verizon Wireless, and Alibaba. And also, I had the founder and CEO of Hawk Media, Eric Huberman, on the podcast in episode number 23, if you want to take a listen. And to get a free consultation, head on over to hawkmedia.com, and be sure to mention Just Go Grind. Without further ado... Here is Dan Kurzrock, co-founder and CEO of Regrained. Dan, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Justin. Yeah, and with Regrained, such an innovative company doing uh, interesting things, I want for people who aren't familiar with the company to t- have us, you know, tell us a little bit more about what you guys do at Regrained. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I get to do my job and, and tell some folks what we're you know, what we're up to here. Uh, that'll be that'll be tough. No, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm excited to be here and, and introduce people to uh, to our company. And you know, really, the company is a commercialization of an idea for building a food system that can do more with less. Um, you know, we're specifically interested in innovative solutions to food waste. We call it food upcycling. And so, really, what we're doing um, at our core is discovering underutilized, undervalued food streams that are kind of hiding in plain sight in our, you know, this system of, of um, you know, food, food production, manufacturing, distribution. And we're closing the loop, uh, putting, putting them back to work as uh, ingredients and, and, and finished goods products that are, you know, ultimately better for people, better for planet. So that's maybe a bit too much, you know, jargon and practice, you know, like, <laughs> one way to think about it is that uh, it, one thing that we're doing specifically right now is actually we work with breweries. We take the grain that they've already used to brew beer. So to brew beer, um, you use barley. It's, it's malted, which just means it's sprouted. And the breweries are extracting sugar from the malt, which then you know ferments and, and becomes beer. You know, hops get added later, yeast gets added later. Um, what's left is everything else that's still in the barley, which is protein and fiber and you know just lots of nutritional value uh, as well as flavor. And so we've actually developed and, and patented a way to create, think of it like a flour. It's like a powder ingredient that can be used to, to fortify a huge number of, of different types of recipes, whether it's snacks or we actually just had an ice cream in San Francisco. <laughs> um, and, you know, what we're, we're kind of creating these, these new products that, that use these, these innovative ingredients, which build markets that then reduce, you know, waste. So it's really this kind of systems oriented business where, you know, we, uh, the more we grow and the more successful we are as a, as a business, inherently, the more successful we all, we more successful we also are against um, our mission of, you know, reducing waste, you know, feeding people and, um, you know, building a, a more sustainable food system. So absolutely uh, what we're up to here. And, and taking a step back, I, I love hearing the, the kind of the beginning and also the, the reason like the why <laughs> that you got started in the first place. So why did you decide to tackle this problem, Dan? 
Yeah, it was, I think, I think like a lot of, uh, actually like a lot of ideas, this one started over a beer. Um, and <laughs> in our case, um, you know, I was actually, I learned how to make beer underage in college. Oh, classic skill. Undergrad. Yeah. So I was a <laughs> freshman at UCLA, my, uh, you know, roommate who's still a close friend came back from winter break one year and learned how to brew beer from his uncle. And we got really into this hobby of, of making beer with, first of all, it's just fascinating being a 19 year old and being able to go into a store and buy the ingredients and the equipment to produce beer. Um, and then of course we, we were never, you know, we never drank it. That would have been illegal, but just you know, <laughs> making it was a very fulfilling uh, hobby. Um, and through that, we discovered firsthand that you use a lot of grain to make beer. It's about a pound for every six pack. So we were making like five, five gallons, you know, that's like a third of a keg. That's, um, think of like a whole cooler that you'd see on the sidelines of a, you know, sports match, like Gatorade, you know, Gatorade cooler. You actually, there's some brewing equipment that you can make using those coolers and creating like a, a false bottom. You kind of make this like big batch of oatmeal, basically. You mix water <laughs> in the grains and you, you drain it out. And then you've got this big pile of food um, that you just have to get rid of uh, just a part of the process. And so if you are in a more rural setting, um, you know, maybe you've got a vegetable garden where you can use it for compost or chickens or, you know, historically there's been, you know, farmers that feed it to, you know, pigs or, you know, or cattle, you know, at a, at a bigger scale in an urban environment, you know, it was, and we were, didn't even have a compost infrastructure at the time. So we were just putting in the dumpster. So it felt like I was making food and throwing it away. Yeah. Um, started, and then a light bulb went off. Um, and realized that, okay, well, if we could take this grain and actually incorporate it into dough to make bread, I could sell bread to friends. I was living in a fraternity house at the time. There's a lot of people around, especially on you know Thursday, Friday nights. I uh, could sell fresh bread, use the proceeds to buy more ingredients, to brew more beer for free. And that was, that was the first kind of iteration of the business model. It was uh, <laughs> maybe a little less altruistic uh, than you know, things may appear today. We uh, were just kind of getting clever with uh, you know, what we had, um, doing more with less. Yeah, and from that, then I understand that you know you start this with okay, let's use these ingredients that we we can have as byproducts what we're already doing, and we can sell these, and oh, that's a great way to go about things. But then, how did that grow? How did that kind of progress from there, from the initial stages of oh, this is this is possible, we're doing this, we figure this out. Uh, how did it grow from there to being okay? Well, let's make a real business out of this then. Yeah, I think the most important thing was that we loved the idea. We were very passionate about it, and it was a. Uh, you know, I would describe the early days as recreational entrepreneurship. So it was, you know, we had this vision for, you know, how this could become this platform, you know, to connect the dots between breweries and, um, you know, food companies. And, you know, we were, we were ideating that stuff, you know, pretty early on, but we were, the way we, we saw it was like, okay, well, let's just take, you know, one step at a time. Let's, uh, figure out if people will buy the products that, that we can make with it. Let's try and figure out why this hasn't been done before. Um, you know, actually, and it even went, you know, if I go kind of in between, uh, you know, where we started and, and, you know, where we landed with the idea of what we're building today, there was other versions of it that were just, uh, that we didn't end up pursuing too, that were, um, but were just part of the evolution of the idea. So we were going to have a brewery that was also a bakery and it was going to be like a closed loop restaurant. <laughs> nice. Um, it, yeah. Still would love to do and, you know, retirement at some point, but kind of as you, as you do this stuff and, um, you know, I think what was key also is that we were, le- we were doing revenue generating learning. So we would, it's kind of this idea of, you know, the MVP that gets talked about with, with startups a lot. You know, we were doing a pretty rudimentary version of that where we would, you know, it started with the bread and then eventually, you know, bread, it took a long time to make and it wasn't fresh the next day anymore. So we started making um, bars because we ate a lot of bars, basically. <laughs> and, um, you know, we were like outdoor enthusiasts and, uh, you know, we'd sell these these handmade bars and hand sealed bags and you know, get feedback and change the change the recipe you know try different things with positioning you know we started saying like eat beer for example and yes so, love it yeah, get people's attention and you know so we were as we were learning we were kind of funding the business with cash flow um from sale, selling what we were from what we were doing and so it was a very um it was very deliberate but it was also very organic you know for the first few years and and how we grew um the goal was to just build a sustainable business uh and we were college students, we were undergrads, and we, you know, there's a few schools of thought about what, you know, when you come up with an idea in, in college, some people, you know, really advocate that you should just, if you really believe in what you're doing, you should drop everything and go all in. 
um, we kind of thought that was a little bogus because there's a lot we had to learn about the world, you know, yeah. and we knew we had an idea, but we figured, you know, as long as we're not taking you know outside capital from the beginning, we can kind of take our time, um, set up, you know, set, set things up for, you know, a trajectory that, that you know, that could be, you know, sustainable and, and, and impactful. And, you know, then it would, at some point, the goal was to have it become necessary to, to drop everything because the opportunity cost of not doing so was, was, to, would be too great, you know, because the business needed our, our time, you know, as an investment. And so, this was finished my undergrad in 2012. Um, we officially registered the business actually in 2013 because California voters made it legal to um, basically get your home kitchen certified so we could do farmer's markets and things like that yeah. uh, without yep. having to go to a commercial kitchen. The barrier was like super low to just test the kind of demand side of, what, of the platform that we were building. Um, and then in 2014, I quit my job, went to uh, grad school and kind of focused on regrand throughout that. And the goal was by the time I graduated in 2016 with a MBA in sustainable business to have a business that was, that was viable and investable and that, you know, was uh, ready to be a kind of a full-time thing. And um, that's what we did. And it's been full-time ever since. That's it. That's incredible. And, and through that process, then when you were working a different job, you're getting the MBA, how was this thing growing? How are you spreading the word about it? I mean, were you still, you're still tinkering with the idea itself, but how are you also kind of growing in terms of, you know, spreading the word and getting customers to actually continue to buy the products you're yeah, creating? I mean, we were just very open about putting ourselves out there as much as possible. Um, from a sales side, I mean, we're kind of in this starvation cycle with, with inventory and sales where we'd spend a whole weekend prepping for a selling event um, the next weekend and, you know, like farmer's markets and, and things like that. And we, that was great because we got a lot of like feedback and face-to-face -face interaction with, you know, with customers. Um, but, you know, also just kind of your classic like nights and weekends too. And like it was, that's why I call it, say it was recreational entrepreneurship. Like it didn't feel like we were working, you know, it felt like we were just, you know, pursuing a hobby, you know, <laughs> yeah. had a, you know, a bigger, a bigger goal uh, behind it. And so we'll work really as much as we could yeah were the farmers fun. markets your your main distribution dan we were doing um you know events we were in a few small like in, independent retailers you know kind of a, uh online you know we built the we built the website um i think our first one was on wix um and you know just were very uh scrappy you know about how we you know how we were doing everything um the goal though i should say is you know even even back then we did not want to have a bar company <laughs> you know, so our goal wasn't to like sell as many bars as we could be in as many stores as we could, you know, build a brand that we would then sell to, you know, another, there's nothing wrong with that, that model. Um, I mean, I'm sure we could pick it apart if we, if we wanted to, it just, it just wasn't what we were, what our vision was for the business. Like we wanted to be an ingredient company that yeah. was supplying other food companies with ingredients. So everything that we were doing with the consumer brand our goal early on was to learn and to, you know, educate the market and build demand and to make sure that there was, could be demand actually for this bigger idea of, okay, how do we tackle the 20 billion pounds of grain that's generated by the brewing industry every year? If we were in a hundred million dollar consumer brand, that would be amazing, but we would work with only a handful of breweries. So how can we make the most impact and, you know, build the biggest business possible? by creating a, you know, a solution that actually facilitates a, a, a market exchange between um, supply and, and demand supply being you know, the breweries, the generators of these you know, nutritious, uh, delicious byproducts and food companies who then could source those and you know, ultimately bring them to market. But there is a, is a market failure. There's a missing market, you know, and there's yeah. a waste being generated as a process and value being left off the table. And so with our brand, we were looking to, um, you know, really just learn, you know, as much as we could. So for us, it was less about growing points of distribution and more about just um, getting, you know, as much insight uh, as we could and, you know, improving. And along the way to that point, Dan, I mean, what were some of those insights you were learning along the way with the process of actually creating this, this ingredient then? Oh, so many. I mean, one of the, I mentioned this earlier, like we, we use this tagline, eat beer, which um, gave us actually a really interesting false positive. I would describe it as where <laughs> it was extremely effective on a sign at an event or on a t-shirt, you know, it would get 
more comments than any you know any other t-shirt i've ever worn for example are you here what's that you know what's that mean yeah tell about what you're doing and it um got it we got a lot of press actually pretty early on that was one of the ways that we got the word out is we were very uh you know this what we're doing seemed to like resonate organically with with the media which we're very you know grateful for and um you know kind of got our story out that way too and eat beer i think was a big part of getting that attention but what we learned was that eat beer actually confuses the consumer. So we get a lot of excitement and intrigue, but when it's on shelf, um, you, know, you see eat beer and you think, oh, does this have alcohol in it? Yeah. Does this taste like beer? Can my kids have this? You know, you, you create questions. And when you're not there as a human to, you know, field those questions and can make the sale happen. And so basically the net of what I'm saying is that like eat beer was a great tagline for getting attention but was actually created confusion as a, like as a packaging, uh, design. Yeah. It's tricky to navigate that then, you know, in person, like you, you can't be there for every sale. You're, you're by every shelf being like, yeah, Dan's just explaining the product. You obviously have to have something more sustainable on that side and change the slogan. Once you had that insight though, then did you just immediately kind of shift in terms of the packaging and what that was going to be, or how did you adjust from there? Yeah, well, so with food, nothing can be as immediate as you'd want it to be um, because you have, for example, inventory, right, of, of packaging. That of course. It's physical, right? And so, you know, we, we just, we, ha- we have rebranded a number of, of times, you know, which is maybe a lot compared to, I don't even think it's probably that much compared to just a normal brand. But also, you know, when you consider the fact that we were just trying to iterate and like, you know, learn about the positioning, you know, it actually strategically makes a lot of sense, I think. Um, so we, we pivoted from putting eat beer, you know, fronts and everything. And we used beer naming conventions too. So we had like our IPA bar and our stout bar and our Saison bar. And it was meant to be just a nod to the roots of the supply chain, but it created confusion. Um, And so then we pivoted to more of a uh, like nutritional kind of functional positioning. So we came up with a a naming convention for the ingredient. We call it regrain super grain plus. Um, And the plus is a bit of a mouthful, but it's actually uh, we do that because there's kind of a few layers of meaning. You know, one is just, it's not just a super grain from a nutrition perspective, but it's got these added benefits of being, you know, great for the the world. Yeah. Um, and then on a, if you picture the back of a food product package where you see the ingredients listed, um, you know, a lot of times ingredients will be, uh, they'll use an asterisk for organic, right? Or sometimes um, there's that like, superscript cross that's used yep. with non-gmo or fair trade and so with the with the plus um we're using it to then call out upcycled as as an ingredient descriptor you know in the bottom too so it kind of created this ability also to flag which ingredients in a recipe you know fit this mission of you know of, of, of upcycled food of um you know kind of the kind of core to what we're what we're doing and so we're actually still using super grain plus um we did kind of change then we changed our look again because one of the things that we discovered was that while most people say that they'll you know care about sustainable products and they'll pay more for sustainable products and all the surveys are very encouraging you know about the future of humanity based on (laughs) patterns right um but consumers are aspirational generally and what they what they say that they'll you know drive purchase and kind of what we uh what, what we've i guess determined is that it's important to you know, there is a subset of consumers for sure that are seeking these things out and that will be a reason for purchase. But generally, sustainability and, you know, upcycling, which most people don't even know about until we teach them about it, isn't going to be a reason for purchase uh, for a cold sale. It's going to be a reason for loyalty. So we got to, like, make the right thing the easy thing for them by creating products that are great tasting, that fit their lifestyles, you know, that you know deliver on nutrition. And, oh, by the way, it's also super, super sustainable. I forget where I heard this originally, but it's kind of like, um, if you think of like the success of Tesla cars, you know, they're really fast, beautiful cars that happen to be electric. Yeah. Very few people are buying them because they're electric cars. You know, they've managed to make this um, product that's uh, bigger than that concept. Um, yeah, it's just beyond what else was out there. And that, that's a key point there, Dan, actually, because that's that's something that, yeah, like you said, everyone's aspirational on paper with with surveys, but, but really what they want, it still has to be a great product at the core uh and also have then the benefits the mission behind it which then to your point is helping them stay and one thing you mentioned there i want to give you the chance to explain this more for people who aren't familiar with upcycling like what should consumers know about what this is even yeah i mean it's uh it's really it's a very old practice it's a new word for a very old practice and we're you know partially 
uh, largely, I would say, <laughs> for the jargon, uh, you, know, be, you know, bringing some new jargon into the food world with this one. Upcycling is a term that um, has historically applied to like material science. So if you think of like building materials or like textiles, you know, for clothing, and it's this idea of instead of like recycling, turning something back into itself, you know, creating something of higher value. So, you know, you might find like a Patagonia fleece, for example, that's made with upcycled like water bottles. Um, and so it's, you know, creating, creating products of higher value. So food upcycling, or we, you know, we used to call it edible upcycling and now we call it, uh, you know, upcycled food, uh, applies that same mindset to, to food. It's, and you, know, you talk to chefs and it's, you know, very much intuitive for anyone who's, uh, especially trained chefs where it's, okay, you use every part of the animal, you use every part of the, um, of the vegetable, like think of a chicken, right? So like a whole chicken that you might get from the store. Maybe you roast it um, for dinner one night, and then you can take whatever meat is left, and maybe you make, uh, you know, enchiladas or tacos or something the next night. And then maybe the third night with whatever's left, you've got kind of the bones and some scraps, you know, boil it and make some soup. Yeah. You know, so it's like, how can you get as much from as little as possible? It's just like good common sense. Um, It's why we have baby carrots. Baby carrots are just cosmetically imperfect carrots that are shaved down to be to be baby carrots it's why whey you know one of the reasons why whey protein is such a ubiquitous ingredient whey is created you know every time cheese is is produced um, it's, and it's a great you know you discover this great source of protein and that's you know that's uh that's an upcycled product you could even you got people that could even argue that a hot dog is an upcycled product you know it's everything but the squeal kind of a <laughs> unsavory to, to, to think about um, oh, man. <laughs> right but it's uh you know it's a product that's created out of the you know it's value added from the bits that you know on their own are not necessarily valuable so but like with food upcycling what it's doing is specifically looking at creating net environmental benefit um by creating uh you know by putting by putting food to its to its best use so we've actually co-founded a trade organization it's a non-profit it's called the upcycled food association so if you look up upcycled food, you'll find it. You'll see a logo that will be familiar from the front of our packaging. You know, it's um, an organization that we created to bring together this nascent industry. We actually just ha- signed up our hundredth member, um, Dole Foods. Uh, you know, nice. multi-billion dollar multinational is an upcycled food association member. Pretty pretty amazing to to see it, it come, see it come that far. Um, and we're actually developing uh, through a third party committee. Um, a, uh, a certification standard. So just like you get certified organic products, certified non-GMO products, certified fair trade products, you know, there's going to be an upcycled food certification that's going to look at, uh, you know, verifying the supply chain and impact of, uh, you know, of upcycled foods that, you know, are, um, you know, becoming more and more prevalent. Actually, just this week, Whole Foods released their top 10 trends for 2021. Whole Foods every year puts out top trends. It's, it's something that the rest of the industry looks at because Whole Foods is where a lot of these ideas really, uh, yeah, kind of get get a market first. Um, upcycled foods made the made the list. <laughs> Watch out! Right? So yeah, I mean we're we're you know we're we're onto something here. It's picking up. Other examples of upcycled foods include. Um, so we drink. Do you drink coffee, Justin? Yes, indeed. So coffee, you're really drinking uh, a bean or the the pit of a fruit, rather. Um, it's a it's a cherry. The the yep. fried, have you ever seen a coffee plant before with the little yeah. red berries? Yeah. You ever wonder what happens to the little to the fruit? the rest of it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, not much typically, but it's actually a great source of caffeine and antioxidants. And and um, there's companies that have developed um, supply chains, you know, from from the coffee fruits, also known as cascara. So you can find um, you know energy drinks on the product uh, on the market now made using using coffee fruit. There's a company called the Coffee Cherry Company that makes it into like a flower. We actually have it in our chocolate coffee bar, um, kind of closing the loop on that ingredient. Similarly with chocolate, um, chocolate comes from a fruit. It's called cacao, right? And cacao also has has pulp. Uh, there's a company that's making a sweetener out of it um, called Repurpose Pod. And actually, uh, Barry, Barry Calibo, was, who's like one of the biggest coffee, um, you know, uh, I guess manufacturers you know in the world they go being to you know being to there's a lot of like melters and mixers out there but they actually like are producing chocolate from the from the field to the um you know to the to the, to the shelf um and selling to a lot of like b2b kind of ingredient stuff anyway so they they just released a, a whole fruit uh, chocolate bar where instead of being sweetened with cane sugar 
um, the chocolate is, um, you know, it's the cacao bean, just like normal chocolate, but then it's sweetened with the cacao fruit. Um, and that's a, you know, a new, new product. So there's a lot of kind of stuff like this. It's, it's very creative. It's, um, and from like a business case perspective, it's, it's very common sense, you know, waste is money. No one likes wasting food. Yeah. Whether you are, you know, planning for your kitchen table or whether you are, you know, running the, you know, the board table for a, for, for a corporation. Right. So it's, uh, um, that's my uh ramble <laughs> about <laughs> food and why you should be excited about it Most importantly, it should be it should be delicious you know and it should be uh something that is not you're not you know buying because it's a good idea but because these are you know great products and you know they're also creating these um cascades of of positive effects you know to, to the world yeah, and there's a lot of opportunity within that, just from what you're saying already, these different companies in the different areas as well. And and taking a step back to even 2016, so you, you know, in 2014, you said you quit your job, you want to get an MBA, you're in that two years, you're like, okay, you want to make this into, you know, full-time gig then. In 2016, I know you went to like a number of different like competitions and stuff as well to kind of get the word out, I imagine. Take me through then 2016, you're done with the MBA, you then have this company. At what point, like where is the company at at that point in 2016? Obviously there's a lot, it's come a long way since, but where were you at at that point then, Dan? Yeah. So we were at the point where we were ready to take investment. You know, we, we realized that, and so what's key here is, uh, so one of the main reasons that we discovered uh, why this hadn't been a successful, successfully executed in the past, this idea of taking the grain from the breweries, like we've been making beer as a civilization forever, um, pretty much literally, actually, uh, <laughs> you know, you can't make beer without creating this. And, and so w- there's no way that we were the first to come up with this, this concept, right? And, you know, we came across all these articles about how nutritious it was, you know, from like nutrition science journals and academia. Um, industry publications, and what they all cited was that uh, while this is a great idea and it's very nutritious, and you can actually make some some really cool food products with it, um, there's a challenge around how to process it at scale because it's very wet. It's about ninety percent water, so it's it's heavy. It's difficult to transport. It spoils very quickly, most importantly. And so yeah. to process it economically is, has been a hurdle using kind of tra- uh, conventional technology. Um, we in 2015 partnered with the USDA, which is a whole story in and of itself, um, but uh, under something called a co-research and development agreement. And we kind of brought them this problem. We said, hey, uh, or rather this opportunity, uh, you know, hey, we've got this this great idea um, for creating supply chains out of, out of brewer's grain, but we don't know how to process it. You guys are the agricultural research service. You're experts in food processing. Um, can you help us find something? I said, yeah, this is why we exist. Sure. You know, um, we and we started doing research with the with the U.S. government. Never thought we would do that. Wow, wow! Uh, <laughs> and what we ended up finding, just fast forwarding a bit, was uh, that basically validated that nothing that was off the shelf out there was was sufficient. Um, um, but had a breakthrough in testing something novel, and it was uh, we we invented a process that we ended up patenting. And so by 2016, you know, we knew that we had this kind of breakthrough in the scaling of the supply side. We knew that it was proprietary. We, we weren't sure if we would get the patent, but we had some reasonable confidence that you know, what we were doing was novel enough um, that you know we'd be able to protect the, the intellectual property that we'd, we'd developed. And uh, we felt that the business was really ready to take it to the next level. But you know this this is not like software technology. This is, we're, we're talking about machines here. The machine needed to be built. You, know, to build, you can't fund the construction of a machine using cash flow from farmer's markets, right? You know, <laughs> not quite enough. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was just time to uh, become a, a real full-time business, you know, and to uh, raise some some capital to actually take the thing to the next level. I like to think of it as like a step function, you know, you think of, um, you know, like you might think of a business growing like exponentially or, you know, having some sort of linear growth. I think a lot of times, especially in the early stages, it's more of a step function where you're like operating at a level for a while and then something happens that triggers a need to, um, or, you know, or you know, uncovers an opportunity at which you're able to then take a jump and start operating at a, at a higher level. Um, and so it goes from, you know, it, it, it kind of jumps like a, like a step function. And that was a, an important one for for us in, in 2016 and started uh really putting a regrain out there as a 
you know, not just a, a fun idea that we had, but, you know, something that was, that was really ready to, ready to rock. Um, and so we started doing a lot of these pitch competitions and, and things like that, just as a way to get out there and build our network, you know, even more in, in food and, you know, meet, meet investors and, and whatnot, you know, in practice, a lot of these pitch competitions, you don't meet that many investors, but you do build your network and you get, you get practice and, and yeah. you get really dialed in and, 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 and your value proposition. Um, and so, you know, that was kind of we, we, a little bit about, you know, where we were at around then. And by 2017, we uh, made our first hires and, um, you know, kind of things continued to, to grow from there. Yeah. And I know you mentioned the fundraising side of it. You needed to have that to be able to take that step function. Actually, looking back to other guests I've had, a couple come to mind with Vanessa Du from Health Aid Kombucha. Again, they started, you know, kind of farms markets as well. And then ended up, you know, when you really devoted to the manufacturing side, getting a new uh, a new manufacturing plant or whatever there, it helps you get to the next level. Same thing with Ryan Emmons from Waikia Water. And they did the same thing, a new manufacturing plant as well for the product. And that really allows you to take it to the next level. For you guys then, how, I mean, how did that fundraising process go for you? And, you know, how much were you looking for? I mean, I don't have to say numbers necessarily, but like, how did that process go for you and trying to raise funds initially? Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I actually love talking about fundraising in specific terms because the, there's kind of this perception out there that there's one way to do it, you know, and you, you, you follow these like letters of the alphabet, right. And, you know, raising various series of, of money and, um, you know, that is, uh, you know, a way to do it. What we did was, was pretty different and, and, and unconventional. You know, a lot of that had to do with the fact that we knew that we were building a business where our, model wasn't necessarily going to be straight down the fairway for any investor. You know, we yeah. weren't a packaged foods company. We you know, have a lot of similarities with food tech companies, um, but we're still building a market for the, you know, the, the supply, you know, the, the, that we're able to create. And so we kind of have this like, have this hybrid model that um, was pretty bespoke to the opportunity that we were, you know, pursuing with, with Regrand. And so the first thing that we did was not necessarily ground, groundbreaking. You know, I mentioned we were doing cash flow kind of funding stuff early on when we, but then when we needed to actually have some capital to deploy, we put together a convertible note, you know, kind of friends and family and, you know, accredited investors um, and just started shopping that around, um, you know, very fortunate to be, uh, you know, to, to have had, uh, you know, a, a network and, and whatnot to, to go to with that. One of the things I also like to talk about in terms of equity, you know, and, and financing, like I'm a privileged white dude, you know, going out and, and raising money. And, uh, Helpful. It wasn't easy, <laughs> you know, and yeah, I, had yeah. a lot, I know that I had a lot easier than a lot of other incredible founders with um, unbelievable ideas um, and the ability to execute on them. And so um, I do like to call out that I, I recognize that, that that's, um, you know, an advantage that, that yeah. early on. Um, we raised a few hundred thousand doing that. Then we did something kind of different. We uh, we did something called equity crowdfunding, which has become more popular now. And, and you know, we'll probably get to this in a bit. We actually have a, a second campaign for this active now. It's um, it's not like Kickstarter. Although we did like one of those types of things too uh, back then. But it's not, you know, where you're like buying a product and you get these perks or whatever. It's actually... The, it creates the opportunity for startups to publicly offer shares in the company to everyday investors for as little as the first time we did it for as little as a hundred bucks. And so we put this offering together and it was very on mission for us because we're, we're trying to build this movement. We really want to democratize also the, uh, like the ownership of our, of our mission and of our, of our success and like venture capital is something that's typically only, you know, available to the, to the elite who are writing, you know, five, six figure checks, um, seven figure checks. And this made it so that our customers couldn't, could invest in us. And so we actually raised about 700,000, um, in 2018 on an equity crowdfunding platform, um, which was very unusual, you know, <laughs> at the time to do that. And it's something that we, that we really believe in. Um, and then the other thing that we did is uh, instead of raising from traditional venture capital groups or private equity, um, 
with what we're doing at actually corporate venture capital makes a lot of sense. So we're trying to connect, we're trying to work with big food companies and, you know, bring products to market at, at scale. Um, and so we've also had, uh, which is also again, unusual for a small company to, to have strategic capital like this um, as early on as we did, but we had uh, Barilla Group, the Italian food company invest in us, uh, Griffith Foods, who's a privately held multi-billion dollar concern that does uh, ingredient innovation, product development, so they sell to other food companies. Um, so great, you know, kind of if you think of like a one-to-many approach, great, great partner. Yeah. For that. Um, and then actually, in, uh, the the group that led this current round that that we're fundraising, where people can go on on WeFunder actually and still invest in, in Regrand if they want to. Uh, the terms were set uh, by an investment from Molson Coors Brewing Company, right? Large mm. multinational brewing conglomerate, which um, you know is for us represents an infinite supply chain. Right. And yeah. we're like all about aligning stakeholder value from you know, supply chain all the way through to shopping cart because we're trying to affect a system solution. And so we've been, you know, from our customers, like literally from our customers through to uh, the, the supply chain, we've been very, uh, I guess, thoughtful about who we raise capital from, you know, and, and you know, it's, it's been it's been pretty strategic early on, I would say that uh, it was really important for us to vet also investors on their expectations. You know, we're from Northern California. A lot of people are used to investing in these like super high tech, rapid growth <laughs> companies yeah. where they make their money back in like a few years. Right. And, um, you know, we're building a food company, a sustainable food company, and we fully intend on and believe in our ability to turn trash into money, right. And deliver competitive <laughs> returns and generate ROI for our investors. But it's not going to happen in three years, right? It's, so it was important to also uh, find patient capital and to be uh, very like upfront with investors. A lot of people don't realize this when you're starting a company, but you're, you know, it's like dating, you know, with with an investor, and you got to decide if you're going to get if you're going to get married or not. And um, you know, it's a kind of it's kind of cheesy, and it's I'm, I'm not for sure. I don't mean to be trite. Like I'm for sure not the first person to say that, but it's really true that you like you need to understand that it's a two-way street and that just because someone wants to invest in your business, they might not be the right investor for your business. And it's okay to walk away from investors that um, have different goals because that yeah. creates pressure, you know, as soon as you take money. And that's, I mean, that's kind of the point, right? And so you want to make sure that you guys want to go, you, have this, you share a vision and that can change over time, but you want to do as much as you can up front to, to really vet um, who you're taking money from because it, uh, it's just key. Yeah, yeah. And on that note too, I know a number of founders I've, I've had in the show have mentioned this, but you know, really talking to the founder CEOs of the companies that those investors have invested in is one of the best ways to kind of vet them. And even, uh, you know, that it gives you a lot of perspective on who they are as people and what they're going to be like, because it's one thing for you to talk to an investor directly. And of course it seems like everything's going to be great, but you know, what is the actual experience like when you have them as an investor in your company? That's very important. One thing too on the investor side of it, you know, you decide to go with the equity crowdfunding route. Why WeFunder? There's there's definitely other options. I'm curious as to how you chose them, and for other entrepreneurs wondering, you know, why did you choose them for the crowdfunding campaign? Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. And and before I want to just comment on something you're you're saying right, but right before that, you know, one of the things that I also like to tell people about investors is, yeah, is that there's in my mind there's three different types of investors. Um, yeah, the first two are you know pretty pretty commonly known, right? There's there's smart money, right? People talk about like smart money, money that can be not just capital, but bring strategic value to the business. You know, it's important to find smart money. Um, yeah. You know, then there's uh, cash money, which is also really important. People <laughs> just want to put cash in the business and see some and see a return on it someday. And they don't need to be involved. They know that maybe it's not there. Maybe they made their money and I don't know, aerospace, you know, but they're really <laughs> passionate about food, right? They're not going to like um try to be super super actively involved but then there's a third bucket of uh cash money that perceives itself to be smart money and that sort of identity crisis is um something that you really want to avoid as a as a founder because you can get investors that want to be very actively involved but not aren't necessarily not that they're not smart brilliant people uh, but that they just don't have you know they're not uh, necessarily the right people to be like to have a board seat, you know, for example. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's really important to just be upfront, you know, about like the involvement that you're looking for from, from that investor. And if you know them to be smart money, make sure it's like, you know, the, the 
kind of smart money that you want. And um, if you believe it to be cash money, uh, part of your vetting process should be to make sure that they also see themselves <laughs> as, as cash money. <laughs> and, and I think that's that's really key. Um, so equity crowdfunding uh, and WeFunder. So there's a lot of platforms out there. You know, there's um, WeFunder's a great one. It's kind of like joining a gym, right? Like you're to be fit, you're still got to put in the work. Yeah. Um, but maybe some have nicer facilities or have classes that you're, that are you know more in line with your your fitness goals or you know or whatnot. We could probably beat that that metaphor to uh, to death. Um, the our experience the first time around was one in which the uh, there were some challenges um, in the back end of how the, the raise happened, which I won't get into the, the details of. But when we were decided to, that we wanted to do a second equity crowdfunding campaign, um, it was because first and foremost, we wanted to give our first equity crowdfunders the opportunity to reinvest. So when you're an angel investor, often you get the opportunity to do a follow-on investment. When you have 700 investors, some of which wrote $10,000 checks, some of which wrote $100 checks, that's not uh, very practical. (laughs) (laughs) And so by creating a second crowdfunding campaign, we could then offer it to the first investors and they could do a follow-on investment. And so that was strategically yeah. like why we wanted to do a second one, along with just believing in equity crowdfunding in general and wanting to you know, help promote its success as a new model for how you know, businesses can raise, can raise money. Um, over the years, because we, you know, our success with equity crowdfunding in 2018, gotten to get to uh, speak on some panels and things like that and get to know some of these other, other platforms and um, you know, did get to know the, the WeFunder team I was always very impressed with uh, with them, you know, and they really have uh, their shit together, frankly, with, with yeah. how these campaigns are run. And that's really important from a legal perspective. Because, like, our, we have an amazing lawyer. He doesn't know much about equity crowdfunding. It's very new. Yeah. So if a lawyer doesn't know about something, they're going to tell you not to do it, right? I mean, or they're going to not advise that you <laughs> – they're not going to necessarily endorse, endorse it, right? Because it's um, – and it's – and then it's, you have to decide, okay, well, am I going to pay them to do a bunch of research and learn something, you know, on my, on my dollar you know, or, you know, on the other end of that, maybe you f- find a partner that like actually has their, their ducks in a row, um, you know, with that. And so with like WeFunder and, and other, others probably are doing this in a similar way. I just really, there's a lot of trust um, that, that I had with the, the WeFunder team and how they would execute it. Like, for example, we have over 700 investors so far on this campaign that's active right now. Those will all roll up into one special purpose vehicle on our cap table. Yep. Of which um, we have a lead investor, um, you know, very awesome, relevant uh, founder. He was uh, one of the founders of Imperfect Foods. You know, it's in, he's in our space. Like he, he, he knows the business. He can add value. He re- he will control the votes for that entire group, right? Um, I won't get into the details of it. First time around, our investors there was that was supposed to happen. But the way that it was executed actually resulted in us having hundreds of different people on our cap table that Oof. we're not going to have to clean up later, right? And so, um, you know, things like that and the platform and also seeing successful food companies, you know, go on there before. Uh, and the team was just, you know, really terrific to work with. We've had a very positive experience with, you know, with WeFunder and our campaign, I'm told, is the fast, like, you know, fastest to reach its goal in the food tech space. Um we, we got to the we're still it's still you know we're oversubscribing relative to what the, the goal was the goal was 535 on that and we went uh, after going public and there was a pre-launch period but after going public in just like three weeks you know the full the full round uh goal was was reached um and so it's uh you know it's, it takes a lot of work mutually to, to pull these things off and it's important to do it with a group that um you know that you trust that's, that's done it before and so i you know i we for me, that was that was WeFunder. Yeah, and then I've been multiple people I've talked to obviously raved about WeFunder and their experience. And you just, yeah, having people you trust is so important. And if people are interested in yours as well, wefundercom regrain if you are interested in, in investing, and should be. I assume it's still open uh, when this goes out in a couple of days, so uh, people can check that out as well. And taking a step back to the the team itself at Regrain, how have you gone about building the team, finding the right people to to join your company over time? Yeah, it's um, team is so important and also so challenging when you're undercapitalized, right? And so, 
it's kind of this mix of finding people that, that have done it before, but that um, maybe can take a, you know, less, less salary and, you know, work, work for equity. And, um, you know, your needs also change over time. So like initially we, we found people that weren't specialists really in anything and just could help the business take on different parts of the business and, you know, and, and make sure that it could grow. Uh, kind of the goal is always to like hire people that are smarter than you. Right. And that, um, you know, can become, you know, specialists, uh, you know, over time. Um, you know, one of the key things that, that we did, we had an advisor who, you know, was an investor advisor who got very actively involved and, you know, gave him a board seat and, you know, eventually not like now he's full time, uh, with the business. So that was a way that we got someone with, uh, you know, some gray hair and, and well, now I have gray hair too, but, you know, some gray hair experience, um, experience. And we've also done a lot with our partners. So while we don't have, uh, you know, the, uh, budget to support like a huge full-time headcount, um, you know, with groups like Griffith Foods, for example, they have, uh, teams of chefs, research chefs, um, that specialize in, in food product development and food scientists who then commercialize the kind of culinary gold standard into a, a scalable, um, you know, solution for, you know, big, big food companies. Um, and so we're able to work with those teams and really leverage those resources as an extension of our own internal team. So that's another way that we've, we've thought about it, you know, as we've, as we've grown, um, you know, when you're the founder of the business, kind of your job, I think is to, again, like hire people that are, that are smarter than you that have, you know, skills in areas where it's actually not, you know, the company doesn't get as much return on your time for those. So like an example for, for us, like I, I'm not uh, like best the best person to be doing uh, the finances. I mean, I have an MBA. I, I have a background in this. I, I'm capable of doing it, but yeah. I'm much. By the, the return on my time for the business is much better spent evangelizing what we're doing and and working with investors and uh, doing business development and um, you know getting you know growing the business and so. You know, I always think of if I know that like my strength is growing the business, you know, my goal is always going to be to help find people that can um, make sure that the business can grow. And then, you know, and then you, you build over time. We're still, you know, we got less than 10 full-time people, you know, in the, in the company. So we're still in the kind of the early stages of, you know, of this. Um, and it's great, you know, company, we think of companies as kind of their own like entities, right? And they get taxed as such, right? That they're their own stuff, like, <laughs> their own thing but it's companies are led by people right and um you know it's uh you know building a, a strong team is is you know really important to me personally you know as a as a leader and we're you know there's uh it's it's not easy but it's um you know it's something that i think we'll always be holding ourselves subject to uh you know improvement on yeah and with obviously the massive goal you have for this and what you want to do, as you mentioned kind of earlier with regrained, the team is going to be a huge part of that. I mean, it's everything. Uh, those are people who actually are making the, you know, everything happen with the kind of ambitions you have. And, and to go back to kind of you in terms of investing yourself, I mean, have there been any particular books that have been impactful for you in this kind of entrepreneurial journey of yours so far, Dan? Yeah. Well, I'm a pretty, uh, I love that question because I'm a pretty voracious reader. Like I, I love reading. Um, there's been Early on, I loved reading a lot of like books by their founders, and I also um, really like uh, like behavioral uh, economics as well. You know, like stuff like Daniel Pink and Daniel Kahneman, and uh, yeah, you know, the Planet Money podcast is also another really great example of that. But actually, for me, um, I actually find that I learn as much or more from reading fiction. Um, I love reading fiction, and I love being put in another perspective. Um, I think it's really good for creativity and uh, it's also, you know, very like, I guess just thought can be very thought provoking and, and, and influential. Um, and so, uh, you know, in addition to reading the nonfiction books or listening to them, you know, as audio books, as I ride my bike or whatever, I'm also always, uh, I consume a lot of, of fiction. And I think that that um, also is very beneficial for, for me. As a, Any standouts for you? Uh, one of the earliest, most influential ones um, is actually starting to get a lot of attention now because they're remaking the movie. Um, is Dune? Uh, Dune yeah, you know, I would, I, I, I've stated publicly before that that book, uh, you know, changed my life in a lot of ways. You know, I love uh, like sci-fi and speculative fiction, kind of, kind of, kind of like that. Um, so that was, 
you know, that was one that's, that, that's pretty early on. But I, you know, whether it's like, spec, you know, speculative fiction or, you know, or literature, um, you know, it's just, I think it's a really amazing feeling to get just immersed in another, another world and another perspective. Um, and it's almost like a, a form of meditation for, you know, for, for me that, uh, you know, is, uh, I guess a big part of my, my identity. Yeah. And on that note too, I mean, what are some things you do to kind of recharge and step away from, from work, which can be all consuming, especially as a founder of a company? Yeah. And especially during these COVID times, it's, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's tough. I, I, for me, I mean, just outdoor, uh, sports, you know, gra- I call it like, you know, part-time gravity research, um, really into <laughs> like skiing and, uh, you know, mount- mountain biking and, uh, you know, trail running and, you know, kind of endurance type sports is something that, that I absolutely love doing. Um, got it, you know, just very fortunate to have an amazing family too, that's close and, you know, great, great wife and uh, dog. And, you know, we have a lot of fun just like going to explore together. Uh, before COVID music, also a huge part of my life. Um, yeah. Love, love music. I'm always listening to music. Uh, I'm actually working on getting better at just being in silence as a <laughs> practice. Um, but it's hard. Love, <laughs> love live music and, you know, that sort of thing also gives me, um, you know, this uh, energy that is um, special. Yeah. There's something, definitely something about it that can be so helpful. I actually just interviewed right before this uh, founder of Tree Fort Music Festival from uh, Boise, Idaho, and then talking about kind of the music side of things and wanting to create a, you know, community and experience around music because it is so powerful. It can be so magical for people as well. And uh, I found that kind of just fascinating, that conversation that we had as well. And where can people go to learn more about, you know, what you're doing with Regrain and connect with you as well, Dan? Yeah. So, I mean, very easy to find, just regrain.com. That's going to be most of our um, consumer-facing stuff. Uh, you know, we've got a store and, you know, all that. We mentioned wefunder.com slash regrain to, to learn more about the kind of back end of the business. Uh, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. Um, you know, I can be pretty easily found there as well as, um, you know, but over over email is is fine too. Love hearing from folks on Instagram. We're, we're, we're at regrains. We're, we're kind of, we're everywhere. We're not on TikTok. Actually, I think we just had an intern. <laughs> <laughs> everywhere uh, on the web yeah, yeah like, I, I will be sure to link it up as well dan at just go grand.com slash podcast and you'll find the show notes you can click on dan's episode uh to everything mentioned will be links and everything as well in there and dan thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today yeah hey, thanks for having me justin it was a great great discussion and appreciate anyone out there who's uh who's taking it in looking forward to hearing from you Thank you for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen. The Weekly Grind, which is my weekly newsletter, comes out every single Friday. You can find it at justgogrind.com newsletter. This is filled with tips, tools, and strategies for growing your business. If you want to know how to launch a business, how to grow it, how to get it off the ground, find employees, all these different things. There's a few tips, tools, and strategies every single week I deliver right to you justgrowgrind.com slash newsletter. Check it out. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you in the next episode.